The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is a joy, it is my great joy and my life's great joy to be able to preach the Word of God for you this morning. Um, Thank you guys for how well you responded to uh, our brother Scott from Iowa City last week. He was blown away, he was blessed, he was encouraged. Um, It's a joy to preach to people who don't just come on a Sunday morning to feel a certain way, but they actually come to hear the Word of God and to learn and to grow and to meet God. And so that's why we're here. Um, it's a joy for me to get to do that. I love to be your pastor. I love to get to do this, this, this morning. And I've got a big task in front of me. That text that you just read has more written about it than any other text in the history of the world. Okay? More commentary on that text than any, co- any co- text, any commentary in the history of the world. And I have 45 minutes. Okay? I feel... Well, I am a very small man, and I feel like a very small man pointing towards very big mountains and saying, look there, that's what I'm going to do today, okay? Uh, G.K. Chester, and this is the set of Wizard of Oz, so maybe I'm the flying monkey today, I don't know. Um, But G.K. Chesterton once said, uh, he tells this story about this little boy that's given an option. You can be huge or you can be really small. What would you rather be? And of course, the little boy chooses to be really big. And it's amazing. His head reaches to the clouds and he, he, he walks through the ocean and he scoops up whales in his hands and he lays down across Nebraska and he gets a nice nap, right? He's a giant. And then all of a sudden he, re- he wakes up the next morning and realizes, oh, this is really boring. And he starts daydreaming about what it would have been like to be really, really small. He could have just stepped into his backyard and it would have been like the Amazon rainforest. He could have jumped into a bucket of ice cream and it had been like a whole winter wonderland and taste amazing at the same time, right? A, a little beetle would be a monstrosity. Just he would look at that beetle and it would look like some kind of, you know, whatever, ancient dinosaur. And he realized his life would have been so much bigger if he could have got a lot more, a lot smaller, And that's what this text is going to do for us this morning. It's going to make us feel itty bitty, okay? That's kind of what it does this morning. And it makes, but it's going to help us see the reality of how big Jesus is. And I think it's going to bring freedom to us as we can find ourselves smaller and smaller in his big story and worshiping a big God. So I'm going to pray. We're going to jump right into it. And I'm going to talk fast. So here we go. Father, we do thank you for who you are. You are not who we think you are. You are not who we want you to be. You are who you are. And we must change our conceptions of who you are based upon how you reveal yourself to us in your word. And I think that Jesus wants to get bigger in our imaginations this morning. Not because 
He's small and we need to magnify him, but because he is really, really, really big, but we have a small view of him most of the time. So I ask the real Jesus to kind of stand up in this gathering and reveal yourself through your spirit. Father, would you speak through my voice this morning? Would you think through my mind? Would you help me um, declare your word with truth, with accuracy, with conviction? And would you hide me behind your pulpit? Because I'm a man with many faults and sins. And so would you speak to your people and open our ears? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so we are in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. I've only got really one thing I want to accomplish this morning, and that's going to be to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? And since we live in the 17th least churched city in the United States, and the 15th most post-Christian city in the United States, that question is of utmost importance. Now, you might not be aware of this, but here's our reality in the Quad Cities. Most people in our city do not know who Jesus Christ is. Now, most of them have heard the name of Jesus. Most of them probably think Christ is his last name. It's not. Most people have never read the New Testament. They've never read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. So they don't know who Jesus is and what Jesus did other than he died on the cross. And they mainly know that just because of the jewelry that's out there, right? They don't know what he actually said. Well, they know judge not that you should not be judged. And they, they probably know treat others as you want to be treated. They know those two things. But last week I met with a, a, a new friend of mine and I was trying to tell him about our church and I was saying, hey, listen, we want to live like Jesus. We want to love like Jesus. We want to teach like Jesus. We want everything is about Jesus. And I said, so what do you think about that? And he says, well, honestly, I, I don't really know anything about what Jesus taught or anything about Jesus's morals or anything about Jesus. And he'd been in church a, a large chunk of his life. I said, that's a major problem. We, we need to clear, clarify who Jesus is. We need to clear up who Jesus is, right? So most people in our city don't know the real Jesus. They know a little bit about him that they've cobbled together from a couple sermons that they maybe heard in youth group or a world religion class they took their freshman year in college, or maybe a meme or two gets thrown in there, right? And th th this is a great problem for us because people, when we say the word Jesus, they have this fuzzy picture in their mind. And a fuzzy Jesus doesn't really change anybody, right? The real Jesus is an anomaly. He's utterly and totally unique. When people met him, they said things like, there's never been a man who has spoken like this with such authority. Nobody says that about fuzzy Jesus, right? Fuzzy Jesus is just a nice guy, right? Fuzzy Jesus is just, you know, he did something nice. He died on the cross for some people, right? No, when people met the real Jesus, they said, there has never been a man to do the things that he's doing right now in front of our eyes. One guy who got healed and then he was confronted by the religious leaders. The religious leaders said, this guy is the son of the devil. This guy is this, this guy is that. And he's like, I don't know who this guy is. All I know is I was blind and now I see, <laughs> right? They said crazy things like that. Jesus 
Nobody had a mild reaction to Jesus. Everyone who walked away from Jesus walked away changed. That's one of the ways you knew there was something special and unique about him. There was no mild reaction to him. You either loved him or you hated him. The, um, this, the Puritans kind of spoke of this reality and said that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. That no, everyone's going to have some kind of reaction to God and reaction to Jesus whether being hardened or whether being melted. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing. All of this is, is really just a historical fact, okay? That, listen, the same historical methods we use to prove the existence of any historical figure and the authenticity of their teaching or writing, that same process we use to, okay, who was Socrates and what did Socrates teach? And can we actually believe this is an authentic, this is actually who he was and this is actually what he taught? The same system, the same historical methods we use to, about, to, to judge and determine if that's actually historical can be used to prove the authentic, authenticity of the scriptures as well. And when we use those same methods, the Christian scriptures for the Christian scriptures, historical scholars have concluded that the New Testament is over 99% accurate to the original manuscripts. And that less than 1% is misspellings and punctuations from copying copy after copy after copy after copy. Now, what, what does that mean? That means this, you don't have to have faith in order to believe in the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Nor do you have to have faith to believe that the Gospels are an accurate depiction of who Jesus was and what he taught, how he lived, and how he died. You don't need faith for that. You just need to be a historian. You just need to use the same method you would use and trust in believing what, who Socrates was and what Socrates wrote. Use that same standard for the New Testament and you'll say, okay, this is who Jesus was. This is what he taught. But now here's the problem. Or here's the rub. Here's the next step. But we do have to have faith in order to believe it to be true. And today you're going to be confronted with this reality. Jesus claimed to be the son of God. Capital G, God. Not like a son of God. Not like son of the gods. Not like, you know, Thor or something. He claimed to be the Son of God. And that means Jesus himself believed that he was more than a man. He was the God who became flesh, the God-man. 100% God, fully God, and fully man. Now, that claim is just absolutely bananas unless it's true, right? And in order for you and for us and for our city to know the real Jesus, we have to know Jesus in his humanity. And that can kind of be taught historically. But we also need to know Jesus in his divinity as God. There's really these kind of two ways to know him. You can study him historically and learn everything about what he said and what he did through the scriptures. But then you're going to be confronted with the fact that he claimed to be God. <laughs> and you're going to have to say, okay, what does that mean for my life? He's more than just a good guy. He claims to be 
God in the flesh. And what we're going to learn today, from it's interesting, from one of Jesus' most passionate rivals, his opponent, one of the most powerful enemies that Jesus had, who was, when Jesus lived his life, who was absolutely convinced that Jesus was a fraud, Jesus was a false Messiah, and Jesus was worthy of the most public and humiliating forms of death, death of, by crucifixion on the cross. What this guy, after the death of Christ, after the resurrection of Christ, comes to be one of his most passionate defenders. He went from absolute hater to hype man. And that, of course, is Paul of Tarsus, the devout Jew, and you could call him a Christian killer since he was there at the stoning of Stephen giving his full approval. He was turned apostle of Jesus Christ, and he wrote this letter to this church that met in the ancient city of Colossae. And what Paul is going to do in this text is he's really going to focus in on the divinity of Jesus. And the, the reality is, if people today know very little about the historical reality of Jesus, they know far less about the divine nature of Jesus, about his divinity. So this is where we're going, and I'm just going to let you know this. I don't say this very often. This text blew my mind this week. Studying this text, I learned things that I didn't know about Jesus. I had thoughts that I've never had before about Jesus. New perspectives on, on Jesus as God that kind of blew my mind. Now, don't get too nervous. It's not heresy, okay? But it's just, it's, it was deeper than I thought, all right? So I'm going to tell you, and I feel good about it this morning, right? Because this is, this is, the, this is the, the, the folks that wake up early, right? This is the studious crowd, right? <laughs> This is the deep thinkers, okay? I'm not sure about the second crowd that I got to deal with later, but, you know, this crowd, I think, can handle it. Now, it's going to be challenging. We're, we're going to jump into the deep end real quick, okay? So let's do that. Let's look at Paul's first statement here about Jesus in verse 15, and I would say 15a because he is just about to pile up phrases. Verse 15a, G, I'm gonna, and, and every time it says he, I'm going to replace he with Jesus just to make it easy for us and to keep it focused, okay? Verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Okay, now there's two really important things that this statement is referring to. First, we need to realize Jesus is the image of God. We need to realize that Jesus was the son of God before he was born of the Virgin Mary. That's hard to understand. Jesus is co-eternal with God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always existed eternally together as eternal spirits. The three in one. We call this the Trinity. All right? Now, what, what is, I want you to hear this. Jesus has always been the image of God. Jesus has always been the image of God. What does that mean? Jesus 
reflects back. So if I'm looking at a mirror, that mirror, in that mirror is my image. It's reflecting back for good or worse, whatever I am, that thing is reflecting back to me. Here, listen to this. Jesus eternally as the second member of the Trinity was the image of God, always has been the image of God. Jesus has always reflected back to the Father his nature, his character, everything about God, his godness, his glory, his purity, his holiness, his beauty, all of it. So when God looks at Jesus, he sees a perfect image of himself, which is one reason why God is always happy because God is perfect and he looks at Jesus and he sees that image reflected back and they love one another. And this dance of the Trinity is, is what love is all about. Now, this is important. And here's this new thought I had this week. This is important because in Genesis, remember when it says that mankind was created imago Dei. Listen, man, imago Dei, Latin phrase that means in the image of God. Well, hold on, okay? Man was created in the image of God. Well, who was the image of God? Jesus was the image of God. That means, listen, Jesus was the archetype of what we should be like. So when God looked at Jesus and God the Father saw Jesus as this, the perfect son, as the perfect reflection, as his perfect image, he said, we need to make creatures like that. Jesus, you are amazing, son of God. We need to make humans like that. And so Jesus was the archetype. He's the original sketch. He's the original design. And mankind was the prototype. Mankind was the creation that was meant to reflect the eternal son of God, the image of God in Jesus. Now, what does that mean for us? That means all of us were created to live our lives the way Jesus would have lived his life from the very beginning. We were to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We were to love our neighbors like we were to love ourselves. We were to reflect the image of God perfectly in creation. That's how we were created. Okay, so Jesus blew my mind this week. Jesus as the eternal son of God, as the image of God from all eternity past, was the archetype for which man was created to reflect. Secondly, Jesus as the image of God. This also speaks directly to what's called the incarnation. Now the incarnation is when God, the eternal son of God, incarnate means put on flesh. Jesus, the eternal son of God, stepped out of heaven, put himself into the womb of Mary, born of the Virgin Mary, and he came. And now as he walked among us, he didn't just come as an enlightened one. He didn't just come as a good moral teacher. He didn't come like Buddha or Krishna or any other enlightened ones. He came as God stepping into his creation, putting on flesh. So Jesus, the eternal image of God, stepped into our place as a human and said, let me show you what this is supposed to look like. That's what Jesus was doing. I don't want to get too excited, but y'all. <laughs> okay, now what does that mean for us? God puts on flesh. Here's one thing it means. If you want to know God, study Jesus. If you want to know God, 
Study Jesus. Jesus shows us what God looks like in our world, in our flesh, in our everyday life. You want to know how God thinks we should treat people? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God thinks we should worship him? Look at Jesus. You want to know how God thinks we should live our life? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God thinks of naps? Look at Jesus. He likes them. He does. Right? Now, this is interesting to me because so many people talk about God. So many people even talk about Jesus. And yet they talk about this fuzzy reality that doesn't have flesh on it. I was listening last night, my family and I were listening to this new uh, YouTube video that put up. Uh, Zane Lowe was interviewing Justin Bieber. And Justin Bieber gives his story, basically, his testimony. And it's amazing. And you should listen to it if you're a fan or even if you're not. Because in it, he says this, all my life, my parents, they were never married. And they kind of talked about Jesus. And I, kind of, I knew Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But I didn't really ever see that. And I didn't see how anybody like really live their life for Jesus in my life because my mom would talk about it, but then she's, you know, not even married and she's living in this relationship and everybody else would, oh yeah, I like Jesus, but then they'd go live immoral lives and they're doing all this stuff. And so guess what? I just did that too. I had, he didn't say this, but this is what I'm hearing. He had a very fuzzy picture of Jesus. And so his life looked real fuzzy, Jesus-ish. No, actually it didn't look like Jesus at all. It had his life that he wanted, sexually immoral, all this kind of stuff going on. But yeah, Jesus is good. And Zane Lowe said, well, what's changed? And he says, I've met the real Jesus. I've read the Bible and I've met people that are actually living lives as followers of Jesus. And I've decided to live my life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's a very fascinating story. And, but it's, an, it's this exact concept that I'm trying to display this morning. The real Jesus changes lives. The real Jesus, if we can get a good glimpse of him, can change our lives. Life. So here's what we're supposed to see. Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus is over everything. And Paul is going to do, he's going to kind of put everything, because, you know, everything is a junk drawer term, right? It's that kitchen drawer that's just got everything in it in, in the kitchen, right? Little junk drawer, just pull it out, hope to find something in there. I'm going to separate it with, Paul separates it with two big buckets, First bucket, he's just going to call creation. The second bucket, we're going to call new creation. Jesus is over everything, creation and new creation. And first, we're going to look at creation. We're going to look at four things here that Paul says about Jesus. Man, this is heavy. First, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the creator of of all things. Jesus is the goal of creation and Jesus is the sustainer of creation. So four sub points to my first point. All right, here we go. Jesus, look, look at verse chapter 18, uh, verse B or B second half of it. The firstborn, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does that mean? Well, at first glance, you might assume that this means that Jesus was created first of all things. Well, that is a mistake that a guy named Arius made in the late third century. It's called the Arian uh, heresy. 
And it's to believe that Jesus was the firstborn, that he was actually a created being. He wasn't God. It's a mistake that Jehovah's Witnesses still believe today, that they believe that Jesus was created first by God and therefore not God. But that cannot be what this text means because literally in the next verse, it says that Jesus created everything. So he can't be the creator of everything if he was created himself, right? No, John 1, 1 says Jesus is eternal with God. So Jesus has always been with God. He's always been eternal with God. He is not created. Jesus is an uncreated creator. So what does this mean that Jesus is the firstborn of creation? Well, when you study the Old Testament, the word firstborn was a code word for the coming Messiah. In Psalms 89, 27, it said this, I will also appoint him my firstborn. Appoint Hear that? I will appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. The firstborn was also in ancient Israel a legal position. And the firstborn was entitled to a double portion of the father's inheritance. So what we're saying here is Jesus has the rights of a firstborn, of God's firstborn. And therefore, listen, all of everything, all of creation belongs to him by the rights of the firstborn. Do you understand that? If we lived under ancient Israel law, if I die, my son Javan would have double portion rights. He'd get my house, he'd get my car, he'd probably get my student loans too, right? Good luck, right? Jesus, by right, is the firstborn of all creation. He owns it all. It's his by right, Okay? Secondly, verse 16 teaches us that Jesus was not created because he is the creator of everything. Look at 16. For by Jesus, all things were created. Well, what do you mean all things? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So right away we're seeing Above, below, different dimensions. He's even talk, he's talking about the spiritual. He's talking about the physical. Visible and invisible, throne, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now that is a weird, complex phrase. Paul kind of uses it a lot. It means simultaneously the spiritual realm, the devil, demons, evil spirits, that Jesus is over all of that. And it also means world systems and world powers and world organizations, systems, you can even say systems of injustice that still exist today. Jesus is over it all. All things, look, were created through him. Okay, so Jesus is the creator of everything here. We see that? So first off, we see he's the firstborn of all creation. Second, we see he's the creator of all things. Now this is where things get even more interesting. All things were created, look, through him and for him. Jesus is the creator of everything, but he's also the reason everything exists. 
Jesus is the goal of all creation. All creation is moving towards the, it's, epitome, its end, it's moving toward its goal, its telos, and that telos is to bring glory to Jesus. We are not the reason creation exists. God was not in the Trinity and going, oh, I just wish I had people, right? I'm just so bored staring at my eternal glorious self all the time and the the Trinity in this eternal dance. This is so boring. We need something to do. Let's create people. And then he creates this perfect world for people and people exist at the center of this world and the world revolves around people and everything exists to glorify people. No, the goal of all of creation is to bring glory to Jesus, that he'll sit on his throne and everything in creation will reflect back to him the image of God that it was originally meant to reflect back to him. And that can't happen with the presence of sin because it's broken, it's bent, it's evil, it's wicked. Now this blows my mind. Jesus is the goal of creation. Every thing in our world, seen and unseen, every rock, every, every river, every animal, every man, woman, and child exists for the sole purpose to bring glory to God by reflecting back to God the image of God. That's what we're here for. Scholar, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, no creature is autonomous. All are God's servants and God's dependents. You might say, well, I don't like this God. I don't like the universe he created. I don't like creation. A friend of mine says, okay, fine, don't like it. But until you get your own universe, it doesn't matter. Look at verse 17. And Jesus is before all things. That means he, is, he takes priority in time and rank. He is first. He is first and he is best. Jesus. Keep reading. And in Jesus... All things hold together. Please highlight that. Please underline that. Do something special with that because that is a gold phrase right there. See, I think up until now, maybe we haven't had a problem with this. Maybe we haven't had an issue with this. Maybe this is nothing new. Firstborn of creation, I kind of get that. Okay, cool. He's got the right of things. Oh, Jesus was the creator. He's kind of the personification of wisdom from from Proverbs chapter eight. And he was there at the beginning and he created all things and all things were created through him. Okay, I get that. But here it says he's also the sustainer of all things. See, the universe is not like some engine that God built and is now running without his involvement because God filled it up with enough fuel and just let it go and God's in heaven and all creation is just puttering along because he put some gas in it at the Big Bang. No, right now, hear this. In heaven, Jesus is holding us together. What does that mean? His word is keeping the sun in its place. If the sun moves, do you know what happens? We either fry or we freeze. That's what happens. 
If the sun moves, we fry or we freeze. What's keeping it there? Well, the word of Jesus is keeping it there. Jesus is keeping the earth on its axis. Jesus is keeping time moving along. We don't wake up and go, I wonder if nine o'clock is going to come, right? Jesus is keeping our heart beating in our chest right now. That means if Jesus stopped his work right now, we would literally fall apart. We would disintegrate. Now, what does that mean personally for us? That Jesus isn't just our creator, he's our sustainer. We owe everything to Jesus. Jesus, again, is over everything. He has our next heartbeat. But Paul here, he can't just quit. He can't just stop. I'd be like, hold on, let me think about that. He keeps going. Paul sees Jesus as over more than just all of creation. You might say, well, what, what else is there? Well, there's what Paul calls in another place in scripture, new creation. Look at verse 18 here. It says, he is the head of the body, the church. First off, I want to go here. He is the beginning. Here we go. The firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Now that is another interesting phrase. He doesn't say Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. He says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, first question we should probably ask here. Okay, if Jesus is God made man and God is eternal and Jesus came down and put on flesh, wouldn't he be eternal? How could God die? Well, here, listen to this. Jesus, who from all eternity has always been the image of God, reflecting back to God his glorious essence, nature, and character. This was what man was supposed to do in creation. Well, obviously, Adam and Eve screwed that up terribly. Every human has screwed it up since then. Mankind never fulfilled its destiny. An object that was created that never did what it was supposed to do. Then came Jesus into our world. The archetype steps into the prototype's shoes and Jesus did what man has failed to do. Jesus fulfilled man's destiny for them. Jesus was the first human being to image God the way that man was intended to from Genesis. That Jesus completed God's original design for man. Jesus lived his life and God said, finally! And look how good it is. So that means Jesus lived the life that all of us should have lived. A morally perfect, God-centered, self-sacrificial life of love poured out for others for the mission of God. But Jesus did more than that. Because mankind rejected God as creator, rejected God as, we, we, we said, you don't have the firstborn rights of creation. I do, I can do whatever I want with my life. And they rejected God as creator, 
You didn't create me. You have no rights over me. I can live however I want to live. We reject him as sustainer. I don't need you. Look, I'm breathing and you're not doing anything about it. We lived our life like we were in charge. We still often live our life like we are in charge, like we are the center of the universe. And guess what? Because of that, mankind deserves disintegration. Think about it. They deserve, if I was Jesus in heaven and you said that to me, I'd go, I'm stopping thinking about you. I'm not holding you together anymore. You just do what happened in that Marvel movie. They just turn into black little pebbles and just disappear. Jesus holding us together and we have the audacity to go, we don't need you, whatever. I'll give you a little bit of my time a couple days a year. Because of that, we deserve disintegration. When Jesus in reality is holding everything together, when you reject him, you deserve to fall apart. Well, here's the beauty of the gospel. On the cross, Jesus took our place. Jesus was ripped apart so that we could be made whole. Jesus was torn asunder on the cross so that we could be put back together again. So when Jesus Christ was resurrected to new life. He wasn't resuscitated. Resurrected is different. Jesus became a new creation. He has, he's fully human. He's fully God, but he's fully alive in a totally new way. He's immortal now. He has an immortal body now. It's different from his earthly physical body. It's still physical. It's st- it's. Paul says, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, it's a spiritual body, right? But it's physical and it's spiritual. It's what's called new creation. It's what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth. When the physical and the spiritual kind of coalesce anew and everything is made new. Now, what happens? Listen, Jesus did all of that as our archetype. We're the prototype. So that when we fulfill our new purpose, now that we've fallen, our new purpose is put your faith in Jesus so that you are now registered as in Christ. And in Christ, you are now a new creation. That's what you are. Like Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17, we say it often. Many of us have it memorized. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now this doesn't just mean, don't dumb this down to just being forgiven. It's not just forgiven. It doesn't just mean that you get a fresh slate, like you're some kind of whiteboard and there's a lot of sin on there and Jesus just comes over and he wipes it off and then you get to start over. No, because that would last about a second until you're making marks again. It means, listen, that a human being that was dead in their trespasses and sins because they reject God's creator rights, his sustainer rights, his godness over them. They've lived in life on their own. It means that type of person, which we're all born as, has been born again in the words of Jesus. 
Their old life is literally dead and gone. That's a, new, that's a dead person back there. It's not who I am anymore. It was crucified with Christ on the cross and their new life has come to them in just the same way as Jesus was resurrected from the dead. They are now a new creation. They have new desires. They have God as their master. They have God as their king. They enjoy saying God is my king and serving under his authority. And now here it is. Listen, the purpose in creation still stands. Remember, we were created to image God. God looked at his son and said, okay, I want, I want to create these humans that will do that in creation. Finite beings, but we're going to put them down there. They're going to image you in creation. They're going to spread the image of God all around the globe. And this whole universe is going to sing back our praises. And we fell and we marred that and we destroyed that. But here's the reality. Because of the work of Jesus, we now are new creations and we now get to do that again. We get to walk in our purpose again. We get to bear the image of God imperfectly right now, but we get to do it again and we get to do it. Here it is. As a part of new creation community doesn't happen just individually. It happens in this thing called the church. Look at verse 18. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. The head of the body, the church. The church, he's saying here, he says in other places, is the body of, of Christ. Think about this. Man, this is just the body of Christ represents God to the world. The body of Christ is meant to image God to the world. So are you individually meant to live in a way like Jesus would live and reflect the body and reflect the image of God to the world? Yes, but you can't do that without other people collectively. We, we have a corporate calling together to reflect the image of God back to the world. Jesus is the head of that. Now here, here's... What I, here's a question I want to ask us as I'm getting, getting close. What happens to a body when it gets its head cut off? Right? Perfectly functioning kneecap can't function anymore. Perfectly functioning heart can't function anymore. When you separate a head from the body, the body is destroyed. So true of the life of a Christian and any Christian thing we do, especially the life of the church. The church is not this building. It's not any building. The church is not a religious institution. Listen, the church is a group of people who have been made new by God, made into new creation, and they're living and gathering together as his body, as his representatives with a vital connection to their head. Living, vital connection. I could say the church is a group of natural enemies 
who have been born again as new creations by the spirit of Jesus, who are now living their lives under his authority in vital connection with Jesus as our head. Think about it. In one sense, it's so simple, right? My body, for the most part, does everything my mind tells it to. Jesus can't say that, <laughs> right? Jesus, as our head, tells us to do many things, and we have rogue fingers and we have rogue arms that decide they want to do other things. But it should be really simple. What does Jesus want us to do? He's our head. I live in vital connection with him. He tells me to move, I move. He tells me to stop, I stop. He tells me to slow down, I slow down. He tells me to kneel, I kneel. Now, I have already mentioned the sad reality that most people in our city don't know the real Jesus. But what's even sadder is how many people who go to church have no idea who the real Jesus is. And I know that because Jesus is not their head. Their life is not shaped and directed by Jesus. Rather, it's shaped and directed by their politics, their friendships, their careers, their families, their hobbies. And it should be pretty obvious to us. When you disconnect, this, this guy that told me last week, I've been to this church, I've been to this church, I've been to this church, and had no clue who Jesus was, what the gospel was, or what Jesus taught. That the head has been severed from the body. And we've got buildings claiming to be the body of Christ that are headless. There is no Christ there. There is no gospel there. There is no power there. There is no real life there. And so there's something else. If you go to church and you don't hear about Jesus, don't go to that church anymore. It's not real. Something else. Now, I want to finish this sermon by reading this text again. And I want our eyes to be looking for the phrase, all things. You could circle it or highlight it as we go through. Let's read it one more time. The whole text, 15 through 18. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Four times all everything or all things, one time everything. And just in case we miss Paul's point, he sums it up in verse 18c, and he says it like this, that in everything he, Jesus, might be preeminent. What does preeminent mean? That, does not, that is not a word you used. If you used it on Valentine's Day, congratulations, you win. Preeminent means surpassing all others. Having paramount rank or importance. It means supreme. What does that mean? Jesus over everything, 
All things. Jesus is our gravity. Jesus is our God. Jesus is our everything. And everything else in our life should take a subordinate place. That means Jesus Christ should have first place in our families. Not sports. Jesus Christ should be first place in our marriages. Not anything else. Jesus Christ should be first place in our professions. We're there imaging God, not just to make money. First place in our mission and in our ministry. First place in our study. First place in the way we use our money. First place in our time, first place in our love, first place in our conversation, first place in every way we live our life, that our life says Jesus Christ is their head and he's directing their body wherever they go. Even first place in our politics. We shouldn't be going, well, what does my party say about this? What does my party say about that? We should say, what does Jesus say about the immigrant or the unborn child or the poor or systems of injustice or the way we use our money on and on and on and on? What does Jesus say about it? And here's the reality. Jesus is the source and sustainer of life. As we move away from him, as we put other things in his preeminent place in our lives, we are literally inviting disaster. I can't tell you how many people I've been in relationship with who thought disobeying God and walking away from Jesus would give them some kind of freedom and make their life better. It never does. Now, it feels free for a short time, like the few seconds might feel free as you step out of an airplane. But then reality catches up to them. Addiction and their relationships start to fall apart and their emotions start getting disintegrated. Why? Because Jesus is the head Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of everything. As you move away from him, you invite disintegration. What is hell but disintegration? What is hell but separation from the head? Separation from the source of life, truth, good, love for eternity. So the question this morning is... Is Jesus, the real Jesus, not some fuzzy notion of Jesus, is the real Jesus preeminent in your life right now? Listen, as the God-man, he's the only one that can hold this thing together. Do you realize one of the most frustrating things for somebody with a Christian worldview is our current political system? But what's interesting to me is how often our political heroes now become our substitute saviors. Many of their campaign promises are nothing short of salvation promises. Let's end poverty for good. 
you're going to do that? Let's heal the planet. What? You're taking that on as your job description? This is the standard you want to be, if you win, this is the standard you want to be judged by in four more years? Did we heal the planet? Well, we got a good start on it. No, you didn't. You're not the savior. No. And then here's the thing. As we secularize, we don't become less and less religious. No, 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 no. We just look to humans to do what only God can do. Oh, right, left. Let's look to our political heroes to save us. Except for the fact they can occupy the White House, the most powerful office in the history of the world, and yet, guess what? They're still powerless to change even the United States of America. Why? But Jesus Christ, the God-man, is holding all of creation together, and he can bear it perfectly on his shoulders, and he can bring it right to its end and its goal, right where it's meant to go, and he can restore it all because he's the God-man, and he's the only one that can fulfill that job description. Man, is Jesus preeminent in your life? Is Jesus preeminent in this church? Is he preeminent in this pulpit? Is he preeminent in this worship team? Is he preeminent in this liturgy? I hope so. We want this gathering to be about Jesus, not about me, not about my illustrations, not about my family and my kids and my ideas, but about Jesus. Is Jesus preeminent in your missional community? You hear more, more gospel, more this is what Jesus did, this is what Jesus said, this is what Jesus would have for us, or do you hear advice, opinions, politics? This call is nothing short than, to put, than for us to acknowledge the reality that Jesus is king and we need to be under him. And so if Jesus is not your king this morning, the, the good news is you don't have to climb some ladder to make that happen. You don't have to pay some tax to make that happen, right? You don't have to this complicated process to become a citizen into the citizen of heaven. No, no, you confess your sins to him and you say, Jesus, be my king. That's what you say. And as we come to this table this morning, I want us to remember, listen, this body, this bread here is the body of Christ. Listen, look, broken, for you. Jesus was torn apart so we could come together this morning. So we can be united in his body this morning. He was torn asunder so we could be brought in. Hear that, believe that, receive that this morning. Father, we worship you. Jesus, we worship you. You are far bigger than we would ever imagine. And we confess our small ideas of you. We confess our small, heal us of our small ideas of you and give us a bigger picture of who you are and a bigger picture of what you've done and what you're doing and what you're going to do. Father, as we come as your body, under your authority, under your headship, and we take this sacrament, that you are coming into us, you're broken for us, so that we can be made whole. Would you pour your love an awareness of your love into our hearts even this morning for the work that you've done for us and the love that you have for your people. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.